electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Tone deaf. Amid myriad signs the economy is slowing, the Fed remains on a preset hawkish course. So should they switch and start pausing rate hikes? There is one data point flashing a big warning sign that employment could be next to crack, and we'll discuss it. Plus, the House of Representatives finally has a speaker, but the concessions made to get there may not bode well for business. We'll tell you what you need to know. And Apple shares have been one stubborn weak spot in the market lately, coming back today, I think. But Tony Sakanagi says they're still too pricey. He'll tell us why. But first, we welcome back the bespectacled Dom Chu with the latest on markets. <laughs> New look to start 2023. We'll see if it sticks. I have a feeling like the contact lenses will be back soon enough. But uh, Fed made an, uh, the, the, Kelly made an allusion to the Fed. Is it too hawkish, not hawkish enough what's happening right now? Well, whatever the commentary from this past week, it's not enough to derail the big rally that we saw on Friday, and it's carrying through to today. Now, we are just kind of in the middle of the trading range, but still generally positive. The Dow Industrial is up 180 points. The S&P up about 42, pushing back towards that 4,000 mark. Now, for context today, up 41 right now. At the highs of the day, we were up 55 points. At the lows, we were still up 12. So there's your trading range on balance up 1%. The Dow Industrial is up one half of 1%. And you double the S&P, and that's what you get in the NASDAQ composite, up 215 points, 10,785. One reason for that tech outperformance has to do with the semiconductors. One of the big ETFs that tracks them, the Vanek Vector Semi ETF ticker SMH, is up 4% right now, 220 bucks a share. It's important, the highest levels since mid-December. It's also back above its 200-day average price on a rolling basis, which is one indicator that some traders use as a matter of trend. So NVIDIA, Advanced Micro, Marvell, among the stocks that Wells Fargo analysts say are their top picks for 2023. That's helping to provide some kind of a bid there, especially for NVIDIA and AMD. Meanwhile, the ETFs that track them up about 3 to 4% right now. So tech, key, computer chips, key. And then one of the places to watch, speaking of mid-December, Bitcoin prices back above 17,000, highest levels since mid-December. Coinbase shares, highest levels since mid-December, up about 17, 18% today on the heels of, yes, some of that Bitcoin bullishness, you will call it on a relative basis, above 17,000. Also, analysts at Jeffries out with a coverage initiation as a whole today. On balance, though, Coinbase shares have shed 83% of their value over the last year, catching a big bounce today. But we always like to show you the one-year chart because it has not been a tough, it's been a tough road, not been easy so far. And even with that 17% gain, Kelly, we're still talking some of the lowest levels in the course of the last year. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, big move on that upgrade. Dom, thank you. Coming off the jobs report, we now await Thursday's CPI report. That could be a make or break for the Fed. Or maybe not. There's an argument to be made that the Fed is not as data dependent as they claim to be. Steve Leisman is here with more. Steve. Kelly, thanks. San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly just now on the wire saying that both a 25 and a 50 base point play uh, point rise is in play for the January-February meeting. 
and that it's too soon to declare victory and stop hiking rates. While she said the Fed is data dependent, some are questioning whether that's true for the Fed as a whole and whether the Fed is headed higher regardless of the data. Uh, Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic telling me last week there's more work to do. He joined Esther George from Kansas City and saying that they're going to hit that 5% rate and likely stay there well into 2024. Tom Barkin from Richmond saying the inflation fight isn't over. And the minutes of the meeting uh, that came out uh, last week uh, say no Fed official is forecasting cuts in 2023. Meanwhile, you had the ISM services sector contracting for the first time in quite a while. December wage growth slowed. November was revised down sharply. And the five-month annualized inflation rate running around 2.5%. To be sure, the unemployment rate did fall. It was down by two-tenths, suggesting the job market is still tight. But look at how the job market reacted to all this on Friday. The, uh, so the bond market did. The two-year fell in two steps from both the jobs number and the ISM services data, a sign that it sees both inflation and economic weakness ahead. The appearance, at least by looking at their comments, is that Fed officials are not really data dependent, but instead they act like they have a date with 5% or higher almost no matter what happens here. Columbia professor Charles Calamara is telling me over the weekend what's strange at this moment when things are so ambiguous is for the Fed to be acting like their actions are so predictable. Okay, the Fed may have it right. Inflation may end up being persistent. Or they could be making a mistake similar to the one they made last year when they nearly all decided, wrongly it turned out, that inflation was transitory. Rather than a debate and different takes on the data, they all sound like they're talking from a script that instead ignores the data. Yes, right? yes. No, I, I, that Calamira's quote is so good because it's odd to be in, a, in an environment we've never been in before. And yet hearing, why is everybody talking about a number instead of arguing about the data and what's leading and what's lagging and whether the bond market can be believed? Let me bring in Kathy. No, no, no. Before you do that, Kelly, take my test. Who's <laughs> a hawk and who's a dove on the Fed right now? I haven't even paid attention because they all sound the same. Same. I, they're, and, they're, it and they're using the same comments. Every time you talk to a Fed folk, Fed person, you get a history lesson in the 1970s. Right. But there's nobody <laughs> like like there is in the market now a debate about whether the 70s is the right analog for today with technology the way it is, with globalization, although on the decline, right. still in place. Anyway, I don't, I, I don't want to uh, keep you from in, No, no, guess, this is but. great. Let's bring in Kathy Busjancic now. She's the chief economist at Nationwide Mutual. She's got her eyes on the labor market data. Kathy, the one reason that you could argue for the Fed staying the course, but again, even here, there are many shades of gray. And as you point out, the ISM services report, what does that tell you about the strength or lack thereof we may see in the future employment reports here? No, thanks, Kelly. Uh, happy to be on with you and Steve. Um, well, the ISM service uh, report was it was quite surprising and ugly, really. Um, you know, we saw new orders um, demand plummet. Um, you, you saw the overall headline index uh, notably fall um, more than six points below 50, and that's the dividing line between contraction and expansion. So it suggests that non-manufacturing or service side of the economy is actually contracting. That's pretty surprising. We knew manufacturing was, right? Yeah. ISM manufacturing was down two months in a row, but this is the broadest part of the economy, right? And and, and it doesn't turn very often. And when it does go below 50, it's typically in line with recession. So it makes me think about those employment numbers that came out, you know, an hour and a half before that, that maybe that was just like the last strong kind of stand on, mm -hmm. on payrolls. And it was consistent with GDP growth that's near 4% in fourth quarter. But that's old news. And going forward, I mean, companies are really starting to get cautious and, and pull in the reins on spending and hiring can't be too far behind. Sure. And Steve, the, the mismatch that I sense that 
people would like to hear more from the Fed about leading indicators. The, the market goes, we're all forward-looking. We all know that this data... So if you look at when they started stimulating aggressively, they in fiscal, okay, March 2020, let's call it. We didn't hit peak nominal GDP growth until the last quarter of 2021. Mm-hmm. That was a year and a half later right. when we hit almost 143 <clears throat> almost 15% of nominal GDP growth in that quarter. So whatever they're doing now is the market's trying to figure out what that's going to be 18 months from now. They don't care what December's wage report was unless, yeah. like Kathy says, it already suggests a deceleration. I, mean, I don't know what Kathy thinks, but people want to hear that the Fed is in the same universe that they're right. in. When they see inflation coming down, when they, you, you see the uh, uh, five-month annualized inflation report, you see the ISM services sector, okay, maybe you are still a believer heading to 5%. But where's the discussion about the economic risks? And most importantly, where's the discussion about the impact of the balance sheet? Um, We had a $400 billion runoff last year or so, um, and it's going to be $1.1 trillion. How is that modeled in? Is that $1.1 trillion? Is that 200 basis points? Is that 100 basis points? How much is that? And does that give the Fed any pause? Here's the thing, Kelly. It just strikes me that if we can avoid a recession... We ought to try to, to try. do so. Absolutely. I, it, by the way, we were just talking about leading indicators. We have a quick market flash on yields with Rick Santelli in Chicago. Rick, what do you see? Well, the three months to 10 year once again, without belaboring the point, almost on a daily basis. And even since the Fed minutes, which were assumed hawkish, we continue to see more inversion. Uh, threes to tens now is basically in the neighborhood of minus 110 basis points. This is the most inverted uh, since the inception of this when we started moving from prices to yields in 1982 for the three-month bill. And it doesn't just end there. Uh, uh, three weeks is the last time we've seen 10-year note yields at this level and Fed funds for June of this year, and I like to concentrate on that fulcrum, that pivotal area, continues to be bouncing above levels that were trading after the hawkish minutes. You know, the Fed isn't data dependent. The Fed's date dependent. They pick out the date. They decide what they want to do. And the only reason I can see that the uh, investor class and some of the journalists are starting to get so much more vocal about how the Fed is most likely well over its skis is because it's so painfully obvious that inflation has slowed. uh, Kathy, you want to respond to that? Yeah. Well, I I think there is some truth that there's been a lack of debate and and disagreement on the FOMC. And I think that's always worrisome. Right. And we saw that during the transitory period, too. Um, I I think what the Fed Reserve is is worried about is that the service side of inflation may not slow as quickly. There are certainly indications things are slowing, but how quickly are they slowing? Um, But certainly if we get you know, wage growth continued to decelerate and employment really starts to slow materially. Yeah, then I think the Fed has to reassess. Um, maybe right now there's a talking tough, but they have to be agile to be able to change their policy if they need to. It's It, it can be very difficult to avoid a recession, yeah. um, you know, if they go too restrictive and, and stay there for too long. Aren't we already seeing, uh, Stephen Rick, some movement in uh, predictive markets at this point? I mean, Fed funds, futures, Stephen, all the rest of it, where we, I think, had gone from thinking a half point was yeah. baked in to think this is that they're meeting in just a couple of weeks, maybe I'm, 25. I'm going to give you a current update uh, uh, while we speak here, but I will say it's down a bit, but they're still kind of banking on that 494 or peak rate. It's what happens after that. But when I look 
at the probabilities for 25 or 50 coming up, it's still, I think, 75, yeah, 77% for a, a 25 and 23% for 24. But I want to go back to something that you, uh, Rick was talking about and Kathy was as well. Guys, if you have that chart in the back about the um, a summary of economic projections and the rate outlook for Fed officials, um, you can see they're all sort of united, 17 of 19. And there is some thinking that the more together they are, the less right they're likely to be. And I think that goes back to the transitory notion. Had there been a distribution or a dispersion of those things, you'd be like, okay, there's somebody in there who's right. But now this idea that they're all clustered there, I don't know, strikes me that that's something to think about. Rick, last word. Yeah, I think that we're all uh, having a good discussion on the issues of the Federal Reserve. But I think a better discussion is investors aren't paying as much attention to the Fed as we are lately. And I think that's a really good thing. Investors see all the data uh, that the Fed sees, and I think they're quite grown up enough to see that the change in inflation is going to reap nice rewards if you jump on this trend early as opposed to waiting for an all clear from a government agency. <laughs> all right. We'll wait until it. Well, Steve will whisper and, and find out I agree out with him. Can. I agree I, with I, what Rick's saying. I, I mean, Kathy's nodding, too. Well, look at what the two-year did on Friday. The two-year look at the same data the Fed did. The two-year decided rates should be lower. The Fed decided they shouldn't change their rhetoric at all. Yeah, with three and a half now we're talking on the 10-year. So I'm hearing people talk about 3% now. It's it, That's why we're steepening, even as it's dropping. All right. We'll leave it there. Everybody, thank you. Kathy Busjancic, Rick Santelli, and Steve Leisman. Appreciate your time. Meantime, job cuts are already hitting the financial sector. Goldman Sachs reportedly set to lay off thousands of workers as soon as this week, following similar cuts for other banks, including Morgan Stanley and Citigroup. CNBC.com banking reporter Hugh Sun joins us now. Hugh, were these Telegraph job cuts or new ones? I know we did we already speak about a round of layoffs at Goldman? Hey, Kelly, good to be with you. I, I admit it gets confusing, uh, even as a reporter tracking all of this. These were uh, previously reported as up to 8%. Uh, so we, we reported that last month. Uh, and, you know, as you know, there's a process in which, uh, uh, you know, investment banking and trading heads go back and forth with ultimately Solomon uh, and, his, uh, and his deputies saying, you know, let's not cut so back, cut, cut far, uh, so back far. Let's, you know, let's go, do a little bit gentler cut. And the result was, uh, you know, a, a layoff that's going to be as high as 3,200 employees starting Wednesday. So that's better or worse than what we thought? You know, that's 6.5%. So that's basically, you know, uh, 800 jobs better than we than we thought than was feared. Hmm. However, if you take a look back, I mean, this is still by far the biggest job cuts of any American investment bank. This is uh, double what uh, Morgan Stanley did last month at 1,600 job cuts. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's interesting for a investment bank with arguably the best reputation on Wall Street. This puts them in the same category as Credit Suisse, which, as you know, is, is a very you know, uh, beleaguered yeah. uh, Swiss, Swiss uh, investment bank as an investment bank that has to have really deep job cuts. Yeah, that's not a category anyone wants to be in. You know, we talked to you about Goldman, how it has a cyclical model. It's really exposed to capital markets. Everyone knows those have been terrible lately. They tried to go big on the consumer business. That's not really paying off here as well. So some of this is idiosyncratic. But what are you hearing from your sources broadly about their own kind of reining things in in preparation for or in acknowledgement of a slowing economy? Well, Kelly, on that, so basically you have to look at the schedule. So we have four Q bank earnings uh, on Friday and on Tuesday of this week. After that, they all pay the bonuses uh, to their employees, which will be down 20 to 40 percent, is my understanding. 
And then after that, they're in wait and see mode. And wait and see mode means if February and March are not as good as their base scenario for revenue of the year, if it turns out that the IPO market is still frozen, the deals are still moribund, then they're going to have to do the one thing that they have in control, in their control, which is to cut jobs. Very interesting. That is a very helpful playbook. A lot of people trying to figure out whether to be exposed to the financials right now. Hugh, thank you very much. Hugh Sun, CNBC.com's banking reporter. We've got a news alert on mortgage rates. Meantime, Diana Olick with that story. Diana, I'm looking at the 10-year and I'm thinking they must be down, right? Yeah, I was just going to say you were talking about the 10-year. So mortgage rates are dropping to start the year because they loosely follow the yield on the 10-year and they could go even lower later this week. The average on the 30-year fixed hit 6.14% today, according to Mortgage News Daily. That's down 40 basis points from the start of this year and down 30 from just a week ago. The rate dropped sharply on Friday after the monthly job report and then moved lower again today. Now, the rate last peaked at the end of October at 7.37 percent. So the monthly payment on a $400,000 home with 20 percent down now about $260 less than it was just in the fall. So lower mortgage rates and lower home prices have consumers feeling much better about the housing market. Fannie Mae's monthly sentiment survey for December out this morning showed more people are now saying it's a good time to buy and more are saying they think home prices will fall further. Sentiment is still just off its record low and sentiment among sellers continued to weaken. But Thursday, we do get the monthly consumer price index. If it shows inflation cooling again, mortgage rates go even further. True. And I was talking to an agent yesterday who said she's never had this little inventory in 40 plus years, never had this little inventory on the market. Diana, we'll check back in soon. We appreciate it. Diana Olick. Coming up, the House finally has a speaker, but it came at a cost. Now lawmakers need to agree on a set of rules for the next two years. We'll look at how that could change the legislative landscape. And Tesla shares have taken us for a pretty wild ride lately. So you might be surprised that our next guest has started buying the stock. She says this market volatility is a gift to investors. Nancy Tangler joins me next here on The Exchange. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. You need a strong stomach for the stock market lately, especially as recession fears loom. But my next guest says volatility is a gift to investors. She's even started buying shares of Tesla. That stock is down more than 30 percent in just a month. Let's bring in Nancy Tangler. She's CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. Thank you for being here, Nancy. It's so good to be here. Great to see you. Welcome, welcome. So I couldn't believe when I read this, and I loved it, that you're buying shares of Tesla at the Mm. same moment everyone's deciding this is the worst stock ever. So What attracted you to it? 
Well, valuation for one. I mean, we, we run dividend growth strategies and then we run kind of a core GARPY strategy and it entered our buy range. So we did the fundamental work and we said, we're not sure what the catalysts are. We identified some catalysts and we, we initiated position on the fourth. Yeah. GARP, growth yeah. at a reasonable price. Yes. This is like kind of the, is Tesla maturing? I mean, in, yeah. in one way you say it's great that it has screened for this valuation wise and, and sort of serious investors are going to pay attention to that. On the other hand, is it a sign that kind of it's, it's really early, really strong growth days are over? I mean, I think that's probably true, Kelly. I, if you look at it compared to the, the major automakers, got much better margins, 16 times Ford's margin, still growing fast. I mean, the stock's off because people are worried that demand is is softening and that, you know, that the company isn't going to grow again. But I owned the stock one other time, and that was when uh, Elon Musk was sleeping on the floor of the factory and doing the podcast. It was almost going bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> right. and, and senior management was leaving. And we, we got out and we left a lot of money on the table. We took a double, but we left a lot of money because it felt like gambling and not investing. It was, it was, you know, and there were no earnings then. Now you've got earnings, you've got a pretty stable board and management team. Uh, it, we're not thrilled. I mean, I liked it better when Larry Ellison was on the board, but I think, I think you'll be happy in three to five years that if you pick up some shares of this, and we just initiated. So, you know, it could go, we, I think we got in at 109, it could go to 90, but if three years from now it's at 300, I'm pretty happy. It's so. at 122 already. One more question on this, but there are some people who would have found it on their screens and said, nope, disqualified because of the Elon Musk factor, the Twitter distraction, all the rest of it. He is one of the most unusual <laughs> founders. Yeah. For better and for worse, I mean, are you not concerned about uh, sort of the risk exposure there? No, I mean, I, that's, I guess my, my response to that would be I, ignore him or, or underestimate him at your own peril. Because in the previous period, I think it was 2018 when we sold it, there, there wasn't, you know, he was in trouble with the SEC over, over his tweets uh, on top of all those other things. So I think you have to step back and say, uh, are they the industry leader? They are. Much like Coach in the old days, we had huge margins. It attracts competition. Competition's going to be good for the end consumer, and it's ultimately going to be good for Tesla because they're way ahead on this. Very, very intriguing. So let's broaden this out. You say, in general, the, the market is presenting a lot of opportunities like this. What about, and I, you know, I'm looking again at all the different projections. You know, one of the smartest oil analysts thinks we could have another year plus of a, of a bull run before the crash. How, what do you tell people who aren't sure whether to be exposed to stocks in general right now because they're not sure how they're going to time this for whatever the remaining time might be on the way up and then to get out at the right moment before we're on the way back down? Yeah. Well, so you've seen all the same studies I have. It's time in the market, not timing the market. We made some shifts in our client portfolios. This summer, we added bonds back in. We'd been out since August when the 10-year hit 50 basis points yield. Uh, so we've been moving them into short ladders. But then in addition to that, we've been focusing them in the equity market in our dividend growth strategy, because that, that has been an historically good place to be. We're not buying the highest yielding stocks. We're buying the fastest growing dividend yields because mm. that gives you information which management's what management is thinking about future earnings power because the dividend's a portion of that. So we're taking our risk in equities in a more defensive manner, but still this strategy has outperformed in up markets as well. So Because that's what I was going to ask. So it, at the point at which we are probably in a recession, what do you do as a money manager that, I mean, do you do you shift people out of it? Uh, do you How do you manage through that? You've done it many a times before. What does that look like? 
So in February, we hedged. February of 2020, we hedged. We didn't know COVID bear market was coming, but we couldn't find anything attractive. So we'll, we can do that on the side. But then within the portfolio, we began shifting about a year ago because we knew growth was slowing to companies that have reliable earnings growth and have a proven track record. So you take Asylum, for example. They, they showed positive growth in Europe this last year when Europe was in actually not growing. And so we look for, for companies that can do that. You know, Raytheon is a defensive way um, to have exposure to uh, the industrials. And, and we just add, it's really stock selection. And that, we're back to that, I'd, I'd say. Would you say it's more stock selection than sector selection? Do you even try to figure out, you know, kind of which part of the market to be in for the next six to nine months? We, we do. We have a top-down overlay. So we, we were overweight healthcare. I mean, there were years when I came on this set and talked only about healthcare stocks. <laughs> but we're back in an overweight there. We're moving towards a market weight and then an overweight in technology. I think this notion that technology is dead may not be the leaders in the no earnings camp part of the sector. But I went back and looked at Microsoft. I bought it in my personal portfolio in 2009, paid an average of 30 bucks a share. Nice. It's up 860%. So for your viewers, you know, it, we're not investing. Some people are, but I'm not investing for the next couple of weeks or months. I'm investing for the next three to five years for our clients. You're looking, so I remember during the financial crisis, Starbucks under $5 a yes. share. You're looking for those kinds of opportunities. Yeah, I bought that one too, and oh. it's up like 1,500%. So, but there were a lot of times when you felt like it wasn't the right place to be. That's why if you've got high quality companies that are growing the dividend, you can get paid to wait to sit back and, and wait for the fundamentals to turn around. When I bought Microsoft, we weren't even talking about the cloud. Exactly. Yeah. You're just about whether they had a mobile phone probably right. back, back That's in right. the day. It, you know, it's a good reminder, Nancy, and a good perspective, uh, especially on a day like this. Thank you. It's great Thank to you. see great you. to see you. Nancy Tangler. Still ahead, what is the recent uptick in trucking rates telling us? A lot depends on its momentum into China's Lunar New Year. We'll look at the fallout for inflation and freight stocks. Plus, Apple coming off its seventh straight week of losses, down 12%. I should have asked you if you're buying that one, Nancy. Down yes. 12 You are? Are you? Down 12% since late November. But top tech analyst Tony Sakanagi is warning of even more downside and says investors might be disappointed by Apple's growth over the next few years. We'll see. We should have a bull bear debate on this. The exchange is back in a moment. Don't go From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Look at this odd market where we have the Dow up a third of 1%, the S&P up 1%, and the Nasdaq up 2% today. A lot of dispersion that we're seeing here. One consistent theme, though, is falling bond yields and that more deeply inverted yield curve. So even though we're seeing some green arrows here, it may be for somewhat of the wrong reasons, as we talked about a moment ago. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. California's Californians dealing with more rain, snow, and flooding today north of Sacramento. Menno, high water slowing traffic to a crawl on the coast. Evacuation orders have been issued in parts of Santa Cruz County. And across Northern California, several school districts have closed because of the storms. 
The Arizona Cardinals trying to put their very disappointing season behind them. The team has fired coach Cliff Kingsbury and parted way with, with general manager Steve Kime, both of whom they'd signed to long-term deals just a year ago. The Cardinals ended with a 4-13 and record. They had a seven-game losing streak to end the season. That'll get you fired every time in the NFL. And Disney CEO Bob Iger telling hybrid employees they've got to work in the office four days a week. Iger says being able to work side by side is key to the creativity that is the heart and soul of Disney. The new rule goes into effect March 1. So get ready, Disney folks. Uh, Go to CNBC.com for more on this story. Meantime, Kelly, back to you. See you in a half hour. Still a hugely contentious issue for so many workers, this return to work thing. Tyler, thank you very much. Still ahead, getting to work in Washington. Kevin McCarthy elected House Speaker after the most drawn out and dramatic voting process since before the Civil War. With the lower chamber now set to lay out new rules for governing, was last week's spectacle just a prelude to getting business done or not? for the next couple of years. What it means for your money when the exchange returns. Welcome back. The fight for the speakership is finally over with Kevin McCarthy making unprecedented concessions to clinch a victory. Now legislators have to establish new House rules. Elon Moy is here with a look at the changes. Elon? Well, Kelly, the first order of business when the House reconvenes today will be to adopt the rules that will govern the 118th Congress, and Republicans want new constraints on spending in Washington. The rules that they'll be voting on today include preventing bills that increase mandatory government spending from even getting a vote on the floor, forcing the CBO to estimate the impact that certain bills will have on inflation, and allowing dynamic scoring of major legislation. The new rules would also get rid of a mechanism that allows for an automatic increase in the debt limit when a budget resolution is passed. It would also raise the threshold for passing any tax increases to a three-fifths supermajority instead of a simple majority. And beyond these official changes to House procedures, conservatives also won a laundry list of more informal commitments. Three seats for Freedom Caucus members on the powerful Rules Committee, an agreement that any increase in the debt limit must be paired with corresponding spending cuts, and a promise for the House to vote on a balanced budget. So if House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reneges on any of these agreements, the new rules would also allow any member to force a vote to oust him from his job. Now, Democrats are saying that these demands are total non-starters. The top Democrat on the House Appropriations Committee, Rosa DeLauro, called these backroom deals that kill the 2024 government funding process before it even begins. And she said that it all but guarantees a shutdown. So, Kelly, a lot of these issues are not going to come to the fore until the second half of the year, but clearly the battle lines are already being drawn. Back over to you. Absolutely. Elon, thank you. So while the speakership is settled, the ramifications from the House fight could be far from over. In fact, in his latest note, one of my next guests says he disagrees with calling the D.C. drama a dumpster fire because that, by definition, is at least contained. Joining us now to discuss is Chris Kruger, Cowan's Washington Research Group strategist, and Sarah Chamberlain, CEO of the Republican Main Street Partnership, an alliance of conservative governing Republicans with more than 70 sitting members in Congress. Welcome to you both. And Chris, I'll start with you. So what are the implications, especially for our investors here? Well, we're setting up sort of a a real witch's brew of of not only headline risk, but meaningful tail risk uh, through the summer and into the fall. Not only do you have a a very tight governing majority in the House, you now have given control of the House via the Rules Committee 
uh, to the most hardline members of that caucus. Uh, you have the debt ceiling sometime late summer, early fall. You have a shutdown fight uh, on October 1. So you have a, a number of cross currents that have really only been more made more challenging uh, by the changes to the rules and the rules committee. So, Sarah, and I explain this how you see it um, as a positive, as a negative. Uh, you know, what, what do you think investors should know here? So I, I think there's a group of uh, conservative Main Street members that are absolutely not going to shut down the government, and they will increase the, the debt ceiling in this country. They are not going to do that. Some of the other changes they do support, um, but those two things, I don't, I'm not concerned about um, and getting those two things passed. They will work with anyone they can not to shut down the federal government. That never works for Republicans. We've been there. We've done that. Right. And it always backfires on us. So I'm not really overly concerned about that. Well, that's why when you say that, I go, well, I don't know. We, we, we've seen this before. And everyone goes, no, we wouldn't do that. It would be, you know, and yet it happens time and again. Why do you think this time will be different? Because we've learned from our mistakes last time, frankly, um, we always get blamed for it. And it's really a no-win situation. You know, we, we reopen the government. Everybody goes, gets back pay. It just, are the members of the Republican Main Street Partnership just don't want to do that. Yeah. And you play with the credit of this country, which we can't be doing that, especially, you know, in, in a recession time, potentially. You know, with inflation so high, it's just not going to be something that the members of Main Street are going to do. No, I, I know government workers, Chris, who love it because they get to sit at home for a couple of weeks. I think by law they can't work. They can't touch it. And then they get all their back pay once it reopens. So, Chris, you've heard Sarah's argument here. Do you believe it? And if so, perhaps there's not as much risk as we might think. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think there, there won't be, but I think you're already seeing it. You'll see it begin probably in the spring when those budget uh, when those budgets come out. Uh, Speaker McCarthy promised a, a vote on a balanced budget amendment uh, that would balance the budget over 10 years. That would set up an approximate 10 percent cut to defense, approximately $75 billion. Uh, we see very little chance of that passing into law. But you're already seeing what, what Elon mentioned earlier. The, the battle lines are being drawn. The most vocal hardliners are in the commanding heights uh, of the incoming Republican House majority. Uh, so it's it's not just a debt ceiling issue, it's a shutdown fight, and it's likely to, to consume uh, the remainder of the Congress through the summer and into the fall. Sarah, especially as we hear reports that uh, President Biden is planning to run for re-election, what, what would be the constructive vision that the Republicans might have now through the results of this speakership to say, OK, this is not just going to be about shutting things down. This is not just going to be about, uh, you know, playing with the debt and all the rest of it. What is it going to be about then? Well, for us, I realize that it becomes a political issue, but it really is an issue for the American people. And the Republican Main Street Partnership members live in these swing districts and they're not going to do it again. I mean, they're really not going to shut down the government. They're going to increase um, the debt ceiling. They're not going to be willing to play with the economy in this country and, and with our debts and with our credit rating. They, they won't do that. I know it's fun to talk about it. And, OK, they're going to do this, do that. I really don't think you're going to see that happen. As I said earlier, we have learned from the last time we've done this, and it never works well for Republicans. And I think it would if we did it, it would only give Joe Biden, frankly, a victory going into his reelection. Right. So so final question, Sarah, what other than not doing that is the mandate you think that they now have been handed? What is it? What is the 
What is it that you think investors need to be watching for in terms of what they would like to do in some of these positions and with uh, some of these new rules? I think you will see some budget cuts, maybe not in defense. Uh, one of our members, uh, uh, Ken Calvert, is going to be the appropriator who's in charge of that. Um, but you are going to see like what's wrong with trying to balance the budget in this country. Certainly we did it many years ago with Bill Clinton and we had great success. So I think you're going to see some discussions around that. Um, I'm actually pretty excited about where um, the Republican conference is going. I know it was a rough start that played out in national TV 15 times, um, <laughs> but we're, we're pretty excited about where we are and where we're going in the future. Chris, hearing that, I'll give you a final word. Does that make you more or less nervous? <laughs> well, if, if we're talking, if the House is talking budget cuts, the Senate won't go along with that. When Biden's budget comes out this spring, would be very surprised if that went along with that. So you're, again, like you're, you're seeing those battle lines emerge and it'll be a question of if, you know, wh when does the battle end? Does it end before or after October 1? Yeah, I predict it's going to be a bull market for your business, Chris. That one, That is one thing I feel that pretty certain of. We thank you both for your time today. Thanks for joining me. Chris Kruger Thanks. and Sarah Chamberlain. Still ahead, shares of trucking companies surging over the past week. XPO up more than 13%. Just because Christmas is over doesn't mean demand is slowing down. Lunar New Year looks like it'll be a big boost. We'll talk about that. Plus, take a look at the Dow. It's now sharply lower, about to give up its gains. We just heard from Atlanta Fed and President Raphael Bostic saying it's appropriate to be more cautious in calibrating rates from here. Huh. Keep an eye on this one. We'll break it down in a moment. Welcome back. For some logistics companies, busy season didn't end in December. Lunar New Year taking place in a couple of weeks is another potential high-traffic holiday. Frank Holland spoke with the CEO of XPO, Stock Up Big, recently. He joins me now with that story, Frank. Well, yeah, there, Kelly. You talked to the CEO of XPO about trucking rates, and in fact, they're up 3% to start 2023. That follows a 5% sequential increase back in December. May not seem like a big deal, but it marks the first uptrend since Q2 of last year. And as you mentioned, all of this ahead of Lunar New Year on January the 22nd. Traditionally, workers take weeks off and imports surge before the break. Last year, when this holiday fell on February 1st, the Port of New York and New Jersey, it saw a 15% rise year over year in import containers that are full. The Port of LA and Long Beach, a single digit rise. XBO counts Ford, Deer, 3M, and Dow Chemical among its many S&P 500 customers. I spoke to CEO Mario Harek. He says he does not see a similar bump this year. There is more product flowing into the country, and they are being able to get access to more of the raw material and products to get to, to fulfill the pent-up open orders that they had from their customers when there were these disruptions in the, in the supply chain. So across our customers, we're seeing supply chains operate more efficiently. Uh, this said, some of our customers, and especially in the truck manufacturing space, as an example, there's still pent-up demand where some of the products, there are some disruptions that are still happening. So speaking of the truck manufacturing space, XBO is also manufacturing its own trailers, aiming to produce about 7,800 this year. Even with the freight market softening a bit, Harik says there are surges that XBO can capitalize on by having that additional capacity. Trailers for us equals efficiency. Because when you work in less than truckload, you have certain days of the month, when you think about end of month or end of quarter, where you have higher amounts of volume, and you need those trailers to be able to move and handle that spike of freight, where they allow you to operate your business more efficiently, as well as move more freight over time. 
Yeah, efficiency is important, not only in transports, but every business. And right now, as you mentioned, Kelly, those trucking stocks are surging. Even though demand is softening, you have to remember, trucking rates are still 20% higher than they were pre-pandemic. Wow, and I had no idea Lunar New Year was now such a big holiday. Frank, thank you. Fascinating. Frank Holland. Coming up, Apple up nearly 3% in today's rally. If you want to call it that, we're losing ground rapidly here. But it's still down about 23% over the past year at about 26% off its 52-week high. Its market cap back above 2 trillion, but despite the recent drop, one top analyst says the stock is still too expensive. That's next on The Exchange. down about 23% over the past year. One analyst is saying this year might not look much better. Bernstein's Tony Sakanagi saying he expects iPhone revenues to disappoint in 2023 and sees potential downward revisions as the year goes on. Given that, he also says Apple is too pricey here. He just cut his target by $45 to $125 a share. Tony Sakanagi joins us now. He's senior research analyst at Bernstein. It's great to see you, Tony. And um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people have kind of, Nancy Tangler just said she's buying it. You know, this is a good entry point for the long run. Why are you bearish, not just for the near term, but potentially for the year? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Kelly. Uh, look, I, I think there's important context here. Um, the tech sector overall was down 34% last year. Apple was down 29 So it fared a little bit better. So on a relative basis, Apple isn't any cheaper than it was one year ago. I think more importantly, when we look at the fundamentals, Apple has had a great two years. Operating profit on average in the five years going into the pandemic was about $66 billion dollars. Last year was almost $118 billion. So we had this huge surge in profitability over the last two years, I think in part because Apple was a COVID beneficiary. And we think we may see some give back um, this year uh, for sure. So we're below consensus uh, estimates. We're at about $580 a share. Uh, the street's at uh, about $620 a share. Um, and we think as numbers come down, it's tough for stocks to work, particularly since Apple is not inexpensive at current levels. I, I think it's a great point. You know, we talk about the pandemic reset in chips and even in cars. And most people thought Apple might be a little different story, in part because of the services and the subscriptions as a service. You know, for those new handsets that were sold, why won't the reliability of service revenue help them get through a time in which hardware sales might be slower? Well, it will help, but it's simply not big enough, Kelly. Yeah. So services revenue in total is about 20% of Apple's revenue, about a third of its profit. But more importantly, most of that services revenue is not recurring. Most of it is, is App Store and advertising. And, hmm. and both of those are subject to the overall health of the economy and consumer spending. So we estimate that only about 6 or 7% of Apple's total revenues are recurring in nature. And so it is a transactional business model. Apple needs to sell iPhones, iPads, Macs, um, and benefit from advertising and app store uh, for the business to work. And there, there really is very limited a recurring or subscription revenue at Apple. What do you think a justified uh, multiple is here? So, it let, you know, it's a 21 times. Uh, are, your, are you questioning kind of the consensus earnings trajectory? Uh, do you think the multiple just needs to come down to something maybe in the low teens like we've seen in the past? 
You know, I think that's the big debate uh, on Apple, Kelly. Um, Apple used to trade at a discount to the market. Right now, it trades at about a 30% premium to the market. The market's about 16 times. Apple's at 21, 22 times. And I think that's a big debate with investors. My, you know, my concern is that if numbers come down and iPhone disappoints, then, then investors may say, look, the story of Apple being this you know, impervious consumer franchise, not cyclical, there may be some doubt cast on that. So yes, maybe numbers come down four, five, six percent. That's not that big a deal. But if the multiple comes down because people start questioning the thesis that Apple is this durable, you know, impervious consumer franchise, we could have some multiple compression. Now, I still think Apple deserves to trade to a, a premium to the market, but whether that's 10% or 20% is hard to say. The final point I'd make on, on valuation is every large technology portfolio manager is trying to make a decision on five big tech stocks, hmm. uh, the FANG stocks, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, uh, Google, uh, and Facebook. They comprise more than 50% of the technology index. Apple is much more expensive than Google, much more expensive than Facebook, in line with Microsoft. Hmm. And all of those companies have better growth. And so, you know, the, the valuation is, is not only absolute, it's relative to the largest choices that large tech technology portfolio managers need to make. Yeah, and I take your point. If they're looking to cull, it might be the one that they cull from. Tony, thanks for right. joining us. Fascinating stuff. Tony Sakanagi on Apple. We appreciate it. Coming up, the high-end market is typically immune to slowdowns, but this year might be different for supercars, at least. We have some headwinds facing the industry. We'll break those down next. Welcome back. You know we look for economic indicators everywhere, and we found one with supercars. High-end car makers reporting record numbers for 2022, but now some questions over how long that could last. Robert Frank spoke with the CEO of Rolls-Royce, and he's here with the details. Robert? Yeah, Kelly, it's the Rolls-Royce indicator. Uh, Rolls-Royce setting a new sales record of over 6,000 cars last year. The CEO telling me there is no sign of a spending slowdown by the wealthy. The U.S. was its largest market with 35% of sales, but China could retake the lead now that it's coming out of lockdown. Once the pandemic is over in China, I foresee for that market uh, uh, quite some stunning business for us because the market is still, particularly in the luxury segment, in growth mode. I would not be surprised to see one day China being the largest region for us worldwide. Now, the average price of a Rolls-Royce last year was $534,000. That's twice what it was a decade ago, much of that due to its bespoke program. That's where buyers fully customize their Rolls-Royces. Its biggest seller was the SUV called the Cullinan. It just launched its first electric vehicle called Spectre. That's doing much better than even its highest order projections, the CEO told me. Now we've got Lamborghini, Bentley, Ferrari, and other supercar brands expected to post their record results this month. And Kelly, no sign yet of a slowdown. All right, for now, Robert, thank you very much, our Robert Frank. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Power Lunch begins right now. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. 
Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.